0: at the Korean American Adoptee Adoptive Family Network Conference um, here in Minneapolis. And this is, um, for the most part, uh, pretty similar to what what I presented last year um, with a few updates. And I'll try to loop in some of the information that Jay and Karen shared as well about their experiences to make sense of the data and the information. I just want to thank again Pastor Park and Yuju for inviting me to work with them the last few years on this project. Um, All right so we're going to talk about adopting mental health and suicide and talk a little bit more about you know what is the connection to give a little bit more background to all of you. Um, I'm not quite aware of what you already know but Uh, I'll do my best to be informative and for this information to be helpful. So just a quick overview of the things that I'm going to be covering. An introduction, a little bit about myself and why I'm interested in this project. I'll talk a little bit more about CAM Center. Then we'll talk a little bit about suicide in the media. And then we'll talk about what do we already know about adopting mental health and suicide. From there. I'll tell you more about the specific project that we've been doing at the Korean Adopties Ministry Center for the past few years. We'll talk about the focus groups, the mental health survey that we distributed, some of the survey results, and then the next steps, which are actually kind of our next and current steps, and then resources that we have available. So as I mentioned, my name's Nicole. I am a licensed professional clinical counselor, um, currently working at a clinic actually here in Roseville. Um, I do some group therapy and individual therapy and I came into the field because of sort of my lifetime involvement in the Korean adoptee community as an adoptee and as somebody who went and spent some significant time in Korea doing global Korean, uh, not Korean American, but global Korean adoptee community development. So essentially some of the things that uh, Jay and Karen were talking about is being like disconnected or not really connected to other adoptees and other adoptive families. People like myself, as we became adults, started connecting with each other around the world. Um, and then I'm also the project coordinator on this mental health and adaptive, or sorry, mental health and suicide prevention project with Camp. I grew up here in the Twin Cities, actually in the city of Minneapolis, and have been involved with adoptive adapte- families since I was very little. My parents, especially my mom, were very involved with other adoptive families, and from the 70s when they adopted me and then my older brother. Um, into the '80s, recognized that it was really important that we were connected to other adoptive families. At one point, I believe late '80s, early '90s, when a number of the families from the cities were moving to suburbs or further out, my parents were looking to move to for Forest Lake. And just a few years ago, they told me as we were looking at houses, my dad and my mom exchanged looks that everyone out there was white and they didn't look like our family and they made a decision that they had adopted kids from Korea and somehow just knew that us moving to that area of Minnesota would not really be helpful or supportive of us. Um, So I grew up as a camper at Korean Culture Camp and then later an overnight camp called Camp Tiger that no longer exists but was pretty important in my development and then later I worked at Uh, Korean Culture Camp, Camp Chosan, which is up near Forest Lake, Camp Kimchi is in Brainerd, and then um, Camp Sejong is in Michigan, and Camp Tiger that I attended was modeled after that. Um, Later, as an adult, I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated from undergraduate um, studies to actually work with a Korean American community organization. Um, So I really wanted to learn more about who are Korean-Americans, not who are Korean adoptees, but as someone who identified as a Korean, as an American, as a Korean-American, wanted to know outside of Minnesota, what are other Korean-Americans like? Um, So I moved to Los Angeles in 2000. Later, after spending a couple years in Los Angeles and working with um, several different Korean-American organizations, mostly in volunteer work, I moved to South Korea and worked with an organization called Global Overseas Adoptees Link which was founded in 1998 by other adult adoptees like myself that were returning to Korea to live, study, um, look for birth families, and really advocate for our rights to our records and our personal history. I thought I'd stay in Korea for like one or two years to learn more Korean. And I had met my birth family in 1997 when I studied abroad. Um, Learning Korean is very hard, and one or two years was not enough. I stayed for eight years. Um, My Korean's still okay. um, But I learned quite a lot about adoption, social welfare, um, and then I worked at a law firm for six years, so no. So Korean words about patents and trademarks. (laughs) Um, But while I was in Korea, I used to organize an annual conference in the summer. So what I realized, this was an extension of my growing up experience of going to camp in the summer. And there are many, many Korean adoptees all around the world, some 200,000 that have gone to the US, Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, France, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Australia and little handfuls to England, Italy, and a couple other random countries. Um, and we were all kind of starting to find each other and realizing you know, we have a lot of things in common um, despite a lot of our sort of adaptive country cultural differences, which we also realize we also have a lot not in common. But it was important um, for me to have a better sense of who I am, knowing my personal history any of you who have ever done any search or at least considered some search or even just visiting Korea, like through Camp Center Spiritual Journey or other birth family uh, search um, tours that are often through agencies or other post-adoption providers. But some of the work that I did was this annual conference in Korea, bringing together adoptees, uh, Korean government, like policymakers, about uh, laws that impact Korean adoptees. <clears throat> regarding search, regarding reunion, and we also launched a campaign for adoptees to reclaim their citizenship in Korea that went into law in 2011. So if you are a Korean adoptee, and you were adopted to a country that permits dual citizenship, you can go back to Korea, and also reclaim and reapply for your Korean citizenship. Um, early on, before I was at Goal, some of the leadership also at that time had lobbied and advocated for adoptees to be able to get this visa called the F4, which is kind of like a green card. And at the time, in 1998 to uh, 2000, following huge financial crisis in Korea, the government was trying to find like educated Koreans that had emigrated abroad to come back to help rebuild Korea. And so some of my mentors, some of my friends that were older than me, had really advocated to include adoptees in this um, definition of who should be an overseas Korean Um, because many adoptees were starting to come back and wanting to come back, but it was very difficult unless you had a lot of money um, to secure a visa longer than uh, 90 days. So that precursor of successful lobbying in 2000-ish, I think, for the F4 really helped us make a case for Korean adoptees to be able to um, reclaim their citizenship, which is not open to all Koreans. I don't know if that makes sense. <coughs> all right, so just a really brief introduction about the Korean Adoptees Ministry Center. So, founded in 2000 by Pastor Park, um, Earlier, you talked about the Minnesota Adoptee Koreans, or MAC, so that was, as far as I understand, the first adult adoptee group here in Minnesota. Um, Had some successes, and sort of fizzled out towards the end of 1990s. So both Korean Adoptees Ministry Center and then um, AK Connection, so Adopted Korean Connection, were started in 2000. Um, Tommy Trainer, who's here, was the founder of that, or the founder. Um, so there's a couple different organizations that have you know tw- almost 20 years history, advocating and helping and supporting adult adoptees. This is significant. This is different than the culture camps um, that were aimed at you know elementary. Then there was a progression to middle school and then high school as the overnight camps um, started extending. As you can see, we're just a nonprofit and working to serve the 15,000 Korean adoptees here in Minnesota, including their families. And so I've listed a few things that Camp Center has been doing on a regular basis. So the monthly spiritual discovery, um, essentially dinner, fellowship, there's uh, usually some kind of teaching on either definitely some scripture, Um, there might be a family values piece but really meant to help bring community together spiritual journey is a specific trip bringing adoptees especially if they've never been back to Korea, to Korea I believe this year it's a two week trip for the first time Um, and then different holiday cultural events educational events and then the last piece which is this project pastoral counseling services like what Pester Park started providing to Jay, um, and then kind of through Jay and others, also met other adoptees in the prison system. Um, Also providing support in other types of crises that adoptees might face because of difficult circumstances, so homelessness, I think Jay also mentioned that as well, and then also either suicidal um, thoughts or other types of high-level crises. So oftentimes, when people are in crisis, they might Google, like maybe like Jay did, um, what's out there, who can help me, who can support me. Okay, so we're gonna talk really briefly about suicide in the media. Um, Last year, about a year ago, We heard about Kate Spade, who as a fashion icon, really well known for her designs and colors, suddenly left this earth. Do any of you recall this? Is this something that stood out for you? Maybe you like her her brand. Um, Shortly thereafter, as a matter of fact, just a couple days later, Anthony Bourdain also died by suicide. Um, are these figures familiar to all of you guys okay so Anthony Bourdain as a chef writer um, traveler an incredible icon he's somebody who's made our world smaller and more connected through his love of food and people and for some of us who like food I'm a big foodie but if you're not traveling to Korea or you don't travel internationally being able to see his work going to Korea is meaningful and it helps us feel like we know something and he did it with a lot of respect. I think there's a lot of shock. Um, Daniel Gray is a Korean adoptee that lives in Seoul. He's been there I think since '05 or 2006, but he's really famous for his English blog on how to find food. It's called Seoul Eats. Um, he's actually featured in Anthony Wordy's, um Korea episodes as well as Andrew Zimmern, as well as the new, I think, Street Food on Netflix. Um, He's a Korean adoptee who also has made Korea and Korean food more accessible to foreigners. And I'm curious if any of you guys know who Philip Clay is. Does anyone know who Philip Clay is? If you do raise your hand, but in this room, seeing as a lot of you don't necessarily know from international work, probably not. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about Philip Clay. He is a Korean adoptee that arrived to the U.S. at age 8 in 1983. He was later deported to South Korea in 2012 because he lacked U.S. citizenship and had experienced years of struggle with mental health issues and illegal drug use. How many of you know um, about some of the problems that international adoptees are facing because some never received their citizenship, were never naturalized, okay? So I see a handful of people. Well, right now it's estimated um, somewhere between, I don't know, 15 to 30 or 50,000 internationally adopted individuals as babies, as children, never became U.S. citizens. Okay. there was a law passed I believe in the 19 and 1996 meant to deport um, like criminal like dangerous illegal immigrants from the US a number of adoptees between 1996 and 2000 were deported because of this loophole because they were not US citizens and they were convicted of felony crimes okay this 1996 law was not meant to deport adoptees, but somehow we fell under this law. And so in the late 1990s, um, there was lobbying and advocating to change the loophole, to give all international adoptees citizenship going forward, right, it would become an automatic part of the process and it grandfathered in adoptees that were still under 18, and which was any of those that were born, I forgot the exact date, but 1982 and forward. Well, Korean adoption, international adoption, started officially about 1953. So that left about 30 years of adoptees, the vulnerable who never received their citizenship. There are lots of reasons why adoptees haven't received their citizenship. Um, oftentimes, it's sometimes families didn't know that there was other processes that they needed to do. Once the adoption was finalized, there was additional paperwork. Back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was no internet. So navigating the process um, took attention, took time, and I believe there was a waiting period of like one or two years, and. If any of you as adoptive parents know this there's a time you had to wait before you could finalize the adoption and then after that you could then file the paperwork so Philip fell under this so his family did not get his citizenship so he was deported Um, once in Korea he struggled due to language and cultural barriers as well as untreated mental health issues Um, my understanding is probably of a schizophrenia diagnosis which is a serious mental illness, which requires care, requires medication. So Philip ended his life on May 21st, 2017. And his death sparked outrage and caused deep pain to many in the global Korean adoptee community who are aware of these issues. You are aware that um, adopters have been deported back to Korea, Brazil, other countries, okay, because of crimes. Okay, there's a a very famous guy who is still alive. Um, Now I'm drawing a blank uh, from Seattle, Washington. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? You mean Adam Kasper? Yeah, crack, Yeah, right, Adam. Okay, so he's still in Korea. (laughs) Um concerning to me, to many in our community, right? Some of the circumstances around Philip's death seem preventable. So we're going to talk a little bit now more about what do we already know about the mental health um, statistics or impact on adoptees to help kind of paint a broader picture so we understand kind of what's going on. So one of the things that we know from a few well-known studies is that the risk of suicide attempt and dying by suicide is higher in the adoptee community than the general population. Okay, One study, um, this is from 2002, found that adoptees in Sweden have a high risk for severe mental health problems and social maladjustment in adolescents and young adulthood. Okay, so that's something that Jay talked about today. I think he literally said maladjustment. Um, the statistics are uh, three to five times more likely to attempt or die from suicide than non adopted siblings. And then about 10, 11 years later, here at the University of Minnesota, <clears throat> I do a lot of research on adoption. A similar study found that U.S. adoptees, um, adolescent adoptees are four times more likely than non-adoptees to attempt suicide as well. Okay. And the Swedish study, some of the risk factors they talked about included higher rates of mental illness like depression, attachment disruptions, Substance use and abuse um, by the biological parents that also then may impact the adoptee's use, poverty, and disconnect from culture and birth origins. Um, You know, these are some of the things that Jay talked about that he experienced. Many of these risk factors I actually want to point out, so in the Swedish study, uh, one of the other groups included immigrant children from other countries, so it was adoptees, non-adopted siblings, and then sort of as almost like a control, other immigrants from other countries. Many of the risk factors experienced at these higher rates were also similar to children of the immigrant Swedes. So maybe there's a little information to give some overlap about that experience also being a different race, a different color coming into a white country. Okay, so given, and this is part of conversations with Pastor Park and then the work that uh, Camp Center has done over the years is to see also here in Minnesota that we know At least, I think in a conversation a few years ago, we had at least about 12 people that we could uh, identify as dying by suicide in the last like 20 years, just between the two of us. Um, So this project was created in response to unaddressed suicide issues or under addressed within the Korean adopted community. And there are a few specific areas or things that we're working on. So one is to better identify the risk factors and barriers that adoptees might face in their growing up experience to raise awareness within our community within our community first and foremost and then more broadly into help and support and mental health providers or you know general practitioners, right? Our families, whether it's our adoptive families or as adults, because many of us are adults now, our spouses, um, as I said, increased community support and resources, as well as eventually, not eventually, but working on reducing the number of deaths in general. Minnesota um, has right now a higher rate, an increase of suicide than many other states in the US there is a focus in public health because suicide is increasing. Minnesota happens to also be increasing at a higher rate. Um, Although the general um, demographic that they see, the rates are in, I believe, middle, upper age, white males in rural Minnesota. But we wanna know because there's not a lot of data on adoptees, okay? For years and years, um, Pastor Park and his wife We're going to the Minnesota Department of Health like annual conference and asking like, are there statistics? Is there information about adapt Because we also, we get these calls, we try to help, we we do the best that we can, but does anyone know about this? There's some studies, but what's happening? Um, So our team is Pastor Park, myself, and then we also work with an advisor of Professor Kim, who is in public health at the U of M, and then his doctoral student. So, as I mentioned, this started about three years ago. We started off by putting together a couple of focus groups to get a better understanding of, you know, what are some of the problems or the issues that we're seeing here in Minnesota. So, one was um, a group of mental health professionals familiar with the Korean Adaptee experience Many of those participants were adopting themselves or providing services to adoptee clients, okay? And then we had a focus group of adult Korean adoptees. Again, to better understand, well, what are the things that you've experienced? How does this impact your mental health? How might this lead to more risky behaviors, like suicide or other kinds of um, substance abuse or more dangerous um, decisions? So I just put up a few key themes that we got from the focus groups, although there's many. Um, first and foremost, difficulties were perhaps a lacking a sense of belonging and or role models who share your appearance and also mirror your experience. So one of the things that Minnesota has done a really nice job of that I talked about earlier in my experience has been the Korean Adapte camps. Um, the early like counselors and directors were Korean Americans and later I realized Korean Americans that probably came from fairly well-off families. As an adult I realized their experience is very different than ours. We come from like families that don't have money, don't have access to more support. So they look like us and I will say without a doubt like having some of those role models was super helpful for me. but. As I was going through adolescence or becoming an adult, I was like, "Uh, I don't know that you understand my experience, but I'm glad that someone like you that looks like me is in my life. Um, Adoptees receive some really conflicting messages about love and adoption, or sorry, yes, love and adoption. Meaning, and this kind of goes back to the adoption agency narrative of rosiness, Right? The narrative was really about finding homes for adoptees, for kids that need homes, and, for, and joining them into families, primarily Christian families, that want to like, take us in and love us, or do it you know, because it's God's will, or you know, something charitable and nice. So it makes it difficult for adoptees to voice or notice, why do we feel sad? if my family was so happy to receive me, or my community, or my relatives tell me my parents did such a good thing. You know, in order for us to be adoptable, we had to be separated from our birth family, our birth country. Oftentimes, many of us became so young, we don't remember that, like, consciously. But we remember it somewhere in our body. We can feel that we can feel that sadness so from an early age on we learn that love and adoption equals separation and sometimes this can be challenging when we get into relationships later in life where we fear being in relationships because we're afraid of we talk about um, the fear of abandonment well with adoptees, it's true we have been abandoned So it's not a fear, it's something that's actually happened in our lives. If we can normalize why that fear is there, probably can help us repair and feel less afraid of consistent, uh, healthy relationships. And then also this kind of goes into the blue um, last line. We experience difficult, confusing feelings that then might come out in these kind of sideways behaviors, like Jay talked about too, related to this unacknowledged grief, loss, and that trauma, that early childhood trauma. For a long time, professionals in adoption didn't want to talk about adoption, and that separation is trauma. But we know now that it is. As an infant, you don't know that when you're taken away from your mom that you're not going to die. I mean, this has been the person who took care of you for your whole life up until you come out. And oftentimes in adoption, there's a separation from birth family, whether it's right away or it's months later, you go into either some foster care or another um, orphanage type of setting. There's multiple placements, right? So at an early age, people that are taking care of you are suddenly gone. Even though as adults later, we can say, oh, you're fine, but as an infant, as a young child, you don't know that. You don't know where you're going. Who are these people? What are these foods that they're eating? I remember at camp, um, so I was adopted as an infant, but at camp, I really loved going because I got to hear stories from some of my friends that were adopted older that had memories, and one that talked about when he got into his adopted family, uh, had never seen like a western style toilet you know so he climbs on top to squat and his family comes in like what are you doing he's just doing what he did in Korea right because the toilet's <laughs> from the ground you know and I hear things about people hoarding food because they've lived in institutional care those things aren't normal when we get here to a family with plenty but they're really normal for the experiences they've adopted child experience earlier. And a lot of times, you know, the adopted families don't have that information. They don't know what's going on. Okay, so what we did in order to better understand what's going on with adoptees, is we created an online survey. It was distributed through SurveyMonkey, an anonymous survey. Um, There were 81 items, sounds like a lot. (laughs) but as someone as, as a therapist and someone who was doing some research i really wanted to know more about these things that adoptees are experiencing so we had questions about basic demographics about their adoption history how they identify culturally or heritage-wise or what exposure they had to other korean adoptees or families growing up we had specific questions um, using Um, already created uh, questionnaires on depression, suicide, substance and alcohol abuse. We asked about what kind of social support did you have growing up and then also have you ever received any mental health diagnoses diagnoses other than depression or depression or other. Does this make sense why some of this information might be helpful to know? Okay so The survey was distributed um, almost three years ago. Feels like a long time. Um, With the potential of meeting more than um, getting into the hands of more than twenty-five thousand Korean adoptees through a variety of recruitment methods: direct email through our listserv, the focus groups. Um, I previously worked on a study at the University of Minnesota, so was able to send that out through their international adoption project, the Korean quarterly newspaper here in Minnesota posters at all the different Korean businesses, the main adoption agency that's still around now, Children's Home Society and Social Services, MinAdopt, which is a post-adoption services provider here in Minnesota, and then at least 25 plus Facebook groups for Korean adoptees. (coughs) Um, I previously worked at Gold Korea, so I kind of blasted my people there and then just other word of mouth. Despite it being 81 questions, average time to complete was 10, 12 minutes and then people had a chance to win a gift card. You had to at least be 18 and up. Um, In total, we had 368 respondents, including some adoptees that were adopted internationally, like to Denmark or Germany. Um, And 120 of them identified as they grew up in Minnesota. So for the purpose of the rest of this, we're focusing on that group, okay? because this is a Minnesota Department of Health funded project. <clears throat> um, and then I also offer mental health resources um, and crisis connection whenever. So, what did we find? Well, some of the favorable results, um, I wanna say, I think these things, they're really great and they really help us in a lot of ways, but they sometimes mask some of the challenges that Korean Adaptees might be experiencing. So the first thing, of the Minnesota respondents said they graduated either from a four-year college or had more education. That's significant when only a third of the U.S. national average has a four-year degree. So we're pretty educated, okay? Adoptees do, in general, pretty well in academics. I'm gonna guess that might be a little bit related to our genes. I mean Koreans in general do well and I think of myself like being very methodical. <clears throat> did not get that from my um, adoptive parents. Um, and then 90% of the Minnesota respondents reported that they're employed. Uh, 75% of them are full-time, the other 15 part-time. <clears throat> We're guessing some of that has to do with those that have children and you know trying to find ways to take care of their families. And this was really interesting kind of parallels my experience growing up in Minnesota that 60% of the 120 respondents said that growing up they had some way of exploring their Korean heritage meaning like they went to a culture camp etc as opposed to less than 25% of the adoptees that answered the survey that grew up in other states does that make sense um, I think one thing I did not put up here as a statistic, so I'll just give it to you. Uh, in, Minnesota, go back. in Minnesota, Korean adoptees make up about two-thirds, 66% of the Korean population. This is very strange compared to the rest of the U.S. In the rest of the U.S., we only make up maybe 5 or 10%. Okay, so Minnesota is unique. Minnesota has the highest concentration per capita of Korean adoptees than anywhere else in the world. US is the top receiving country, and then after that, I wanna say it's maybe France. So we have an estimated 150,000, and then France, I think, is like 10,000-ish, okay? So we actually have also a very unique Korean community here in that there's a lot of adoptees. A lot of people know an adoptee or adoptive family. Um, Koreans that come here as non-adoptees, I'm guessing some of you have been asked, like, are you adopted? Does that happen to any of you? No? Or sometimes people think it's weird that you're not adopted, (laughs) right? Okay, so. What we also found were that the depression and suicide rates are also much higher. And this again, if this is the sample of 120 Minnesota, like group care respondents. Um, over half said that at some point in their life they had actually received a diagnosis of depression. Whereas in the US adult population, um, it's about 17%. So that's at any time in their life that they receive a diagnosis. And then slightly more than 22% of the women in Minnesota, and actually this paralleled also the females in the rest of the US, reported that they had attempted suicide at some point in their life. Uh, We did include the males because I think the male sample was like 15 and none of them reported having attempted suicide. Okay, for Minnesota. The lifetime prevalence, so any time in their life, of average other U.S. adult of attempting suicide is really low. 2 to 4.6%, depending on a couple different um, sources. Okay? So we're finding with these numbers maybe a 5 to 10 times higher rate based on our survey, I'll talk about some limitations as well, but just based on this information, it's not to say it's fully conclusive, but based on those that were willing to respond. Also, 100% of the females that reported having attempted suicide, they all said at some point they received a diagnosis of depression. I think that's not surprising because, you know, you're at a higher risk if you're depressed, So maybe the clinicians that are seeing them at least are seeing some things accurately. Okay, Um, some protective factors. Um, And again, this is just according to the data. We don't know 100% why these are, quote, protective or helpful, but this is in our data, and we're kind of still going through it um, in our writing process to make sense of the data. But adoptees tended to do better if they felt a sense of belonging while growing up. think that makes sense feel more connected Um, one parent they also reported that at least one of their parents really understood them while they were growing up and I think that might also kind of connect to that first thing they work part-time maybe part-time only and I think we were like well maybe they have less stress I don't know they're not working full-time um, those that are in their 40s were doing better, so maybe it's a matter of, you gotta get through the really hard stuff. And if you make it through, things get a little bit easier. I mean, I think even Jay talking about history today, that this would make sense for him. Um, and this one, we don't really know why this is, but had a sibling that is not their biological sibling, but biological of their adoptive parents. Don't really know what that is but it stuck out. And then some other risk factors that contribute to higher rates of mental illness and um, depression, or sorry, suicide attempts, was so a history of mental health. Um, there was another Korean Dapi that's attempted suicide, which makes sense, because this is a risk factor for anybody. If they have a friend or a family member that's attempted suicide, that is a risk factor. Um, non-binary gender status, so that also Maybe related to additional stresses that they face. This one is really interesting. Um, have been to Korea. As someone who loves, and Korea is also very stressful, but really loves Korea, and I think that's really helpful and healing, but it's a very difficult process at times because all these emotions come up and you get all undone. I don't know for sure but my guess is. Um, it depends on when people answer. Oftentimes going to Korea, when you kind of come back, it really opens up a lot. And my hope or my guess is that this gets better with, <laughs> with time, but I'm not sure. It does open up sort of this Pandora's box of emotions. And then this seemed to be a factor. I don't know if that's the way either, but possibly having a sibling that is also adopted from Korea this might relate to knowing someone else has attempted, but this is what we just found in the data. <coughs> um, so I wanna be very, very careful that I talk about some of these limitations of the survey um, because this is not necessarily in a place that we can generalize it to all Korean adoptees because we didn't reach all Korean adoptees. Does that make sense? Okay. We sent this out to people who are connected to community so that's the survey participant bias we don't really know how to contact adoptees that aren't connected to community so we don't know what they do because we don't know how to find them but we're working on that so maybe some bias in those that responded because one they're already interested in mental health or they're more willing to talk about it right We don't know the ages when the adoptees experience their suicidal thoughts and behaviors because we didn't ask them. So if we were to do the survey again, that might be helpful. The two uh, studies that I talked about earlier, they looked at behaviors for adolescent, young adult adoptees. So that protective factor of being older than 40, again, it might be getting through some really difficult things, and then it gets better. this next one, difficult to actually track and find adoptees that have completed suicide. So this is something we're working on with the Minnesota Department of Health. We've been tracking with them now the last couple of years. Um, to They made actually a box in their statistics to track if the person's adopted. So they'll also ask us, they'll get names, and maybe there'll be data if they're like Asian or Korean, but. The parents last name or peterson or something like that we'll do our best to try to help them make sense that yeah it's, it's likely they were adopted um and then this last thing so the department of health helped us put together this fact sheet we're still working to continue to update the data um, and according to that fact sheet the number of adoptees completing suicide in Minnesota was actually far below the current average of that rising statistic of suicide in Minnesota in the general population so it might not be that bad so that could be hopeful we don't know 100% but so far if we can't find these people maybe this isn't very accurate does that make sense Okay, so this is next steps and kind of actual current steps. So we've been working on um, increasing the types of parent and community education programs that we're doing. So today is one example of that. right? We want to be able to raise awareness. We want to share information. want to give you guys resources. Um, we're working on also uh, creating more sessions for adult adoptees that are parents trainings um, for mental health professionals and community leaders, so I have QPR up there and that's something we're gonna do today, which is that suicide prevention training through NAMI. Creating and sharing a mental health suicide support resource network. So in your folders, we have a mental health resource list for you guys. There's some specific like clinics, clinicians listed and some databases on how to find a therapist that is experienced in adoption. for myself, when I was in grad school, and I actually went back to school to do therapy, also with adoptees, was to better understand how are people trained as therapists to talk about adoption or to even bring that up as a contributing like experience as to why someone's depressed, as to why they're having difficulties with expressing themselves, okay? It's not always talked about, or even asset and intake. So really important for us to start expanding this network. Um, And then kind of, this is similar uh, for what we're doing today, more info session. We're currently working with the U of M team on publication for the data and the survey, and then making some presentations at uh, different conferences. And then I know this is kind of a random little box out there, but considering that my example of Philip that I put up there was deported because of his lack of citizenship um, also helping those of us who have citizenship awesome great if you have people in your family or community that you know that doesn't find any ways to help support the current campaign that's going on I know senator Amy Klobuchar is um, A writer of the current legislation and I think she was an an original like the main sponsor of the first one a couple of years ago so this is an actual campaign that's going on so you can actually Google that like adopt citizenship campaign Um, these are just a couple examples of some of the parent community education that we've done the last couple of years Uh, these are both done at the Korean Institute of Minnesota with the parent groups that were there and then any other public people who wanted to come um, I happen to do a lot of mindfulness so that was something that I did which is really about how do you and I think some of the things that Jay and Karen talked about is sometimes we're not aware we don't know what's going on or we don't know what we're feeling so practicing having more awareness of self so that we can increase our opportunities to talk to each other Okay. there's normal adolescent stuff that comes up but apart from that i mean we have these extra layers in adoptive families and adoptive families across race right that maybe for majority of us our white parents aren't aware of they don't know it's really difficult to bring up those conversations and then also exploring grief and loss (coughs) in adoption and also from a trauma line so again it's been a long time and a battle where professionals in the fields might not even think of or see adoption as trauma, but the impact, the symptoms that can come up sometimes in our behaviors or our depression or anxiety are probably related to that early loss, early trauma. And we also talk about it in terms of attachment. Attachment may or may not always encompass all of that. Um, community events or trainings like QPR that we're going to do, so this was one from 2017. Um, Just more, this was related to sharing the survey data. And then finally, I just have some resources for you guys. So in your folders, you should have all gotten a magnet that has the National Suicide Prevention Hotline on it. Stick that up on your fridge. Um, you might never know when you might need it or just put it or share it with somebody. The crisis text line, so the crisis line, crisis connection uh, is no longer in business, but since many people text now, you can just text for help. And then referrals for adoption competent therapists. Again, these are people who would have adoption on their radar if you're gonna see them for therapy, and this is in the resource list in your folder. Suicide prevention trainings, like QPR, and there's actually mental health first aid and a couple other trainings. So we as a community, some of these are offered. You can just go to them for free and find them at NABI. We have one coming to you guys today, but you can also go online and they're free. Um, and then also really like connecting with your local or international adoptee community. And one of the things that Jay talked about at the very end was As an adult, so I grew up with adoptees like my whole life, and it was just a normal thing, and it was weird to not be connected, but many adoptees don't need another adoptee until they're in their adulthood, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and that is very, as Pastor Kirk talked about, culture shock, right? If you can have somebody as a mentor or somebody who helps bring you in, it'll help alleviate some of that anxiety, because it is a lot. But starting to Google, I mean, I think Facebook probably has like 100 adoptee groups now. I don't know, it's a ton. And adoptees tend to actually find each other in these online spaces and utilize that very well, which is really interesting and unique because there was a New York Times article a year ago about um, how social media has caused us to be more isolated and less less connected in the general population. I'm just going to leave this up for you guys. Uh, So pretty much, that's kind of all I've got. I know we're actually leading into lunch, so I should wrap this up real quick. But maybe five minutes for any questions or comments.
1: You said two sort of Koreans are adopted. How many? What's the exact number? Uh,
0: I believe. Okay, so it's about 50. 15,000 Korean adoptees, I think 21, 22,000 Koreans
1: in Minnesota. Does that make sense? You, you said two things that I weren't sure were the same thing. You said that the risk of suicide for adoptees is higher, but then in another section, it was something that was same or going up in a different way. Like, up the same or lower
0: than Minnesota? Yeah, okay, so in the two studies like the studies that have been published in these journals in those populations that they studied, it was higher, right? In our data we found that it also looks like, yes, those rates are higher, but in the statistics that are captured by the Minnesota Department of Health It doesn't look like it but we also don't know if they are capturing the deaths by suicide of actual adoptees accurately because of our names and how those boxes on like race and things get checked or don't get checked and prior to us doing this project that wasn't tracked if they were adopted or not and now we're doing that does that make sense so our limited I think the limited data set with what we are able to see, it looks like it's not as bad, but we also don't know that we have accurate data in the Department of Health Statistics. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yep. Yeah.
1: How was your experience
0: meeting your biological parents? <coughs> oh. Um. How about we talk about that maybe? Okay. Yeah. Separate. Yeah. Any other question? I have often wondered,
1: uh, where are those fifteen thousand people? I mean, sometimes when I go to Korean churches, they're like only one or two, maybe three people of adoptees. I mean, their numbers quite significant compared to Korean community. Yeah, like where are they? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, anyone who's adopted here want to tell them where you
1: are? You Anyone can talk. I mean, well, one of the challenges with Korean adoptees is. We feel like we're caught in two cultures. We're living in America, and then you go to the Korean church, and it's primarily native Koreans. And it's like we're trying—we're trying to figure that out. And it's—I know you guys make it as comfortable as possible and accommodating, but we're having to figure out what does that mean for us. You know. Um, because we're like in our own little space, in Korean there's It's a, u- a unique uh, mindset to have. And while it's, we're so we're, we're trying to figure out who we are. And then that's where it gets difficult. It's not necessarily what you guys are doing, it's just trying to, you know, that's why it gets difficult. Because even though it's, um, it can be perceived as being, um, Adoptees perceive it as being like they they feel like they're reminded of the the, uh, a different culture in a sense even though and so that's why it gets um, complicated and that's why even though you are being inviting it can sometimes feel like being reminded of the old culture of Korea and while it's supposed to be while it's meant to be inviting sometimes it it can it can create the impression in our mind that you know we're being reminded of what we aren't. Or what we may never be, you know, with with all the culture and language and you know, we are Koreans but we think like Americans. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like love hate relationship. I can kinda of answer that. I'm an adoptee, but it's all about location, location, location. I'm not like for me personally, I'm not in Brooklyn Center, so I don't go to the
0: Korean uh I don't go to the Korean church at all, and also that I get up, like, way late, so I don't like getting up at 9 in the morning to go to church. So I'm also up, like, till 3 in the morning, so it's, like, it's, it's not convenient at the same time. I think for most adoptees it's just
1: not convenient for them to drive all the way to Brooklyn Center to go to a Korean church, and maybe other people have different Locations where they go to church instead versus just the Korean uh, community that's available.
0: So we'll really have more time to discuss some of these things like in the breakout discussions later. Or we'll just, I'll just take one more question and then we'll wrap up so you guys can eat. Uh, I just have a quick question. We did a study on suicide. And are you going to do any other studies on other uh, issues related to adoption and Korean adoption? Mental health-wise. Yeah, suicide is just a small, sure, sure, yeah, very important, but there's lots of other. Yep. Um, Because the grant that we have was specific for suicide prevention. I mean, that was the focus of this, but this does obviously give us um, a lot of information for future direction. So I would say broadly, yes, we would like to, and we'll kind of see what happens. But yeah. Little bit about where the funding was available for us to do something. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna um, close. I realize like already 12 13. So the lunch, I think Pastor Park went to check, is in the room next door, and I think they're gonna open it up here. I think they are going to open somewhere here. Yeah, and then we're just the buffet, get your food, just bring it back in here, um, and then we'll meet. Uh, for the QPR training at 1. So take a little break. If you have any specific questions, feel free to ask me. We'll talk later. Thanks, guys. Yeah.